0: Hey there Shedsters, thank you for joining me again in the littlest parish in Christendom, the Holy Shed. And here we are at the end of, well, what for me has been a pretty full-on weekend actually. Very satisfying, but pretty full-on. Yesterday we had an amazing Enneagram workshop right here in the Holy Shed, uh, kind of, (laughs) which I thoroughly enjoyed. I mean, we had a bunch of very, very lovely people who'd all gathered Uh, virtually, to open themselves up to learning new things about themselves and about other people. Uh, It was great. Left me a bit jiggered, if you know what I mean, but very, very lovely. And um, no rest for the wicked. I'm going to be up very early tomorrow. Very early for me anyway, uh, because I'm doing the last of my short run of Pause for Thoughts on the early show on Radio 2 with uh, the gorgeous Vanessa Feltz. So I've been, you know, spending time over the weekend when I wasn't enneagramming, thinking about what to say and getting my script together and submitting it as you do and all that kind of thing. And the theme on the show this week uh, is Words to Live By, because tomorrow, Monday the 21st of March, is World Poetry Day. So anyway, if you happen to be unfortunate enough to be up and about, if you can't sleep or whatever, um, very early, then I'll be on at around about 5.45, and it'd be great if you, if you were there with me. But if not, don't worry. Uh, if you want to catch it, I'll post a link later on. Anyway, today is for us, in the Northern Hemisphere at least, the Spring Equinox. For those of you who are down under, and I know there are down under people here, um, it's the equivalent in autumn for you. And whichever half of the world we are in, this is the time of year when day and night are more or less equal. I mean, for the more pedantically minded, I know it doesn't exactly occur on the equinoxes, but, you know, it's a significant moment for both hemispheres, really, in both zones. It's a, t- it's a moment of, of the balancing of light and day. And in the Enneagram workshop yesterday, our focus was on the shadow side of our personalities. You know, those parts of us that we prefer not to acknowledge, which we tend to avoid or, or even project onto other people. And the point, one of the big points of the workshop anyway, was to see how important it is to balance these two things. You know, uh, what you call our idealised self-image, the way we like to see ourselves, the way we like the world to see us, and balancing that with these other, you know, shadowy parts of ourselves, things that we bury or ignore or disown. So here at the equinoxes, it's a great time to recognise not only the light and dark outside, but the light and dark within ourselves and to open ourselves to greater integration, greater authenticity. In autumn, we embrace the shadows. In spring, we welcome the light. But in both, we acknowledge the importance of balance, of equilibrium, of an integration. So I invite you to grab a candle and light an equinox flame, whether it's spring or autumn for you, to express uh, a generous welcome to both light and and shadow, to embrace the wholeness of who we are, and to know that it is all held in divine grace, that we're loved for exactly who we are. We're not loved for who we'd like to be, for who we feel we ought to be, for what perhaps, who knows, we will be. We are loved for exactly who we are now, flaws and all, light and dark. And that's unfortunately a message that isn't always that clear in the realms of Christian spirituality. But God is the creator of light and dark. And so we need to uh, explore both of these things. Light your candle and take a moment of just uh, pondering that thought that you are unconditionally loved. divine source of light and dark, creator of all, help us to know that we are loved beyond measure. Help us also to love ourselves and to embody the holy equilibrium in which this beautiful planet, our home, is forever held. Amen. So, uh, the next... For the next however many weeks during Lent, um, I'd like to talk about the Apostle Paul. We haven't done this before directly in the Holy Shed, and, and hopefully I'd like to, to reintroduce you to him, to give him a chance. <laughs> because let's face it, for more progressively minded people, Christians or non-Christians, I mean people like Shedsters, um, Paul isn't exactly flavour of the month. And the reason is pretty straightforward, you know, because letters attributed to Paul in the New Testament, for example, tell slaves to obey their masters, wives to submit to their husbands, women in general to button it, to remain silent, and same-sex couples to just stop it, really. Uh, (laughs) Open and shut case, you may think. And to press the point home, uh, Howard Thurman lovely man who was once a mentor to Martin Luther King and then became Dean of the Chapel at Howard University. He told a story about his African-American grandmother who, and it's, and it's, it's amazing to think of this, that, you know, within the, the time frame of when he told this story, someone was alive, his grandmother, who was enslaved in her early life on a plantation in Florida. And, uh, and this is what he wrote about his relationship with her. He said my regular chore was to do all the reading for my grandmother. She could neither read nor write. With a feeling of great temerity, I asked her one day why it was that she would not let me read any of the Pauline letters to her. What she told me I shall never forget. During the dread days of slavery, she said, the master's minister would occasionally hold services for the slaves. Always, the white minister used as his text something from Paul. At least three or four times a year, he used as a text, Slaves, be obedient to them that are your masters, as unto Christ. And then he would go on to show how, if we were good and happy slaves, God would bless us. I promised my maker that if I ever learned to write, and if freedom ever came, I would never ever read that part of the Bible. Wow. Strong stuff, hey? So look, before jumping straight in on Paul, uh, because today is sort of a bit of an introductory thing, really. I'll get more to specifics uh, in subsequent weeks. But before jumping straight in, I need to say a couple of things about the Bible in general and how we read it. As we know, many Christians hold that the Bible is the word of God, end of. You know, you either believe it, Old Testament, New Testament, and the maps, (laughs) or you're not a proper Christian. But of course, we know that this isn't how it works out in practice. Just about everyone, if they're honest, does some measure of picking and choosing with the Bible. They may not admit it, they often don't or they may use some sort of hermeneutical jiggery-pokery to explain it away. But I think pretty much everyone, with even an ounce of common sense, jumps over some bits in the Bible, here or there, finds some bits that they just can't really swallow. But as I say, it's difficult to admit that. Uh, Personally, I take a critical approach to scripture which doesn't mean I criticize it as in you know have you heard about that Luke guy <laughs> no it means that I ask questions I use my God-given critical powers I apply healthy skepticism I recognize that the Bible emerged from a very different world very different culture so I draw on the insights Uh, of science and history and, you know, modern literary studies, etc., etc., because, in my view, uh, an ideological starting point, and that's what it is, an ideological starting point of this is the inerrant word of God or whatever, inevitably will lead to an impeded form of reading. We won't read it for what it is. We'll read it for what we believe it's supposed to be. So, personally, I study carefully what biblical scholarship and science and history, etc., have got to say. And I also bring my own critical intelligence, as I say. I try to be honest. But I also try to be open and receptive to, sometimes, the very strangeness of the text. Because it's from a world different to mine, you know, a sacred text which let's face it, has informed and inspired generations of people, and therefore I need to honour that and come to it with an openness and a receptiveness, but never to set aside uh, my critical powers or the tools that scholarship gives me uh, to think critically about the Bible. So what does all this mean in practice? Well, in the case of Paul, the Apostle Paul, it means asking things like, did Paul really write this? which I'm reading here. Who was being addressed? Uh, What was the context of him saying these things? How different is our worldview to the worldview of the writer? And and how do we take that into account when reading and making sense of what we read? Uh, And as I've said a few times, I think it's important to ask ourselves, what do I dislike about this as well as what do I like? Uh, when I read this and, and why do I dislike it or like it? Also how does it challenge me and what should I be doing about it as a result? So first of all let's just say this whether you like him or not Paul is a giant. Okay we're told he was actually quite small and that's what his name means but he also was a giant of the christian tradition a hugely important figure actually far beyond the tradition you know paul has been a huge giant of a figure an influential figure in western culture in general and for me you know the real paul was hugely radical but set that on one side because you know to get anywhere close to understand who Paul was, and what he is about, we need to completely recontextualize him, transplant him, actually, from where he's been placed to where he actually belongs. What am I talking about there? What do I mean? Well, let me begin to explain it with a bit of a pers- my personal experience, because in my conservative evangelical fundamentalist, really, church background, no one would have admitted it but paul was actually more important than jesus you know no one would say that but fact you know reality spoke for itself um of course everybody affirmed jesus was the son of god and all that kind of stuff our lord and savior etc but you know what there was precious little about the historical figure of jesus that was ever brought before me um rather the emphasis was uh how we understood what Paul taught about Jesus. That was was where the emphasis was, so the Gospels figured much less in the sermons that I grew up with than the letters of Paul. Um, To be honest, the Gospels were mainly taught in Sunday school, uh, but the adult sermons and adult teaching was mainly from Paul's writings. I loved it when I was introduced to the lectionary approach to reading Scripture, you know, following the pattern of lectionary readings over a three-year cycle, because suddenly the Gospels became the main dish in the menu, if you like, you know. But in my evangelical upbringing, it was always Paul's teaching, and particularly about justification by faith and and that sort of thing, that was centre stage so that you believed this is actually what Christianity is is all about. you know. We talked about trusting in Jesus in order to be saved, but in reality, salvation lay in believing certain doctrines derived from Paul's letters. Faith uh, really meant actually ticking boxes, signing up to certain beliefs, and and there you go. You're in the club. You're going to heaven because you believe the right things. But guys, this approach has nothing at all to do with Jesus as we find him in the gospels it's also i want to tell you nothing really to do with paul nothing to do with the new testament the huge problem is understanding uh, in understanding him is that paul has been basically wrenched torn out of the first century context and planted into the 16th century reformation okay and that is what most of us have inherited by way of understanding or interpreting Paul. He's had the agenda of the Reformers. Paul is the foundation of Luther's theology. Paul is the foundation of Calvin's theology, uh, of Wesley's and others. As a consequence, those of us from you know Protestant evangelical backgrounds have basically been taught to see Jesus, to see God and the Christian gospel, through a Pauline lens, which is heavily filtered through the Reformation, through Reformation theology. So the Christian message, you know, was justification by faith, which, as I say, mostly meant believing in God and Jesus as understood or mediated through uh, Paul and the Reformers. And I'm not saying that everything that the reformers, you know, came up with. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is quite a big distortion took place here of who Paul was. So Paul was taken out of that first century context. This, uh, you know, thoroughly Jewish man and planted into uh, the relatively modern world of of the Reformation, where all of that background is basically lost and he becomes... uh, founder of, of non-Jewish Christianity, um, you know. I mean, it's commonly said that Paul was the real founder of Christianity, uh, as if um, he'd turned his back on Judaism and, and helped to create a new religion called Christianity based on a Jesus who himself was wrenched out of his Jewishness And turned into a Christian figure you know whether that's a a Protestant version or a Catholic version and there are sort of subtle and quite big differences but it doesn't matter depending on your background Um, you know Jesus basically uh, was you know denuded of his Judaism and turned into uh, you know this Christian figure but Jesus was a Jew you know as we've said many times in the shed from the cradle to the grave he showed no inclination towards he gave no hint of any interest in starting a new religion called christianity that's you you won't find that in the gospels you know his message was completely rooted in his jewishness in his jewish background furthermore not generally noted paul too was completely jewish Uh, the Jewish scholar Daniel Boyerin wrote a book about Paul called "A Radical Jew" because that's how he uh, he sees Paul as a first-century radical Jewish cultural critic. He saw him as a voice within Judaism, transcending it, but nevertheless, you, you, you know, rooted in 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 his Jewish background. Boyerin points out that while Paul preached this universalist message that included both Jews and Gentiles, that even that was not something which was foreign to Judaism. And in his book, he, he argues at length as to why things that sometimes are thought to be uniquely Christian, actually, and A.J. Uh, you know, Levine, who we've been looking at, says exactly the same, really. Uh, so, so things that you know, we've thought were perhaps um, uniquely Christian actually a part of a radical vision derived from Judaism and from the Hebrew Scriptures, in fact. I believe what we need to do in order to understand Paul better is lift him out of the 16th century Reformation, which is not his natural matrix, and place him back into his natural matrix of the first century, where his message wasn't Christianity against Judaism, as it's often sort of portrayed, or or indeed Christianity against paganism, his message was Christian Judaism, because essentially he had a a merger of the two things, uh, Christian Judaism against Roman imperialism. That is the real mission of Paul. And when we understand that, Everything changes, you know, and, it, and it's not just Roman imperialism, because by implication, uh, Paul saw his Christian Judaistic message as being something that was opposed to all imperialisms, which would include not just the Roman Empire, but, but British or American imperialism in, uh, in the contemporary world. So what about some of the um, what we may now see as obnoxious teachings of Paul? that seem to amount to, you know, well, to sexism, to pro-slavery, homophobia or whatever. Well, one place to begin to think about this is to recognise that while half of the New Testament pretty much is either attributed to Paul or about Paul, because, you know, most of the book of Acts is about Paul, isn't it? So almost half the New Testament is about Paul or by Paul. What he actually wrote himself is very much less. There are 13 letters in the New Testament attributed to Paul. But mainstream biblical scholarship now puts these into three categories, which are letters actually written by Paul, letters not written by him, and letters about which there is some dispute or uncertainty. You know. According to a massive scholarly consensus, at least seven letters in the New Testament are seen to be genuine, if you like, or by that I mean written by Paul himself. And they are Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians, Galatians, Philippians, and Philemon. That's it. So those ones. Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians, Galatians, Philippians, and Philemon. Written in the uh, 50s of the 1st century, give or take a bit, these are actually the earliest documents in the New Testament. Those books I've just mentioned are the oldest documents in the New Testament. Mark, the earliest of the Gospels, dates to around 70, so 20 years after uh, those writings by Paul. So the authentic Pauline letters are actually the oldest witness to what has become Christianity. According to an almost equally strong consensus, 1 and 2 Timothy, 1 and 2 Timothy, and Titus, were definitely not written by Paul. And the others, which would be like Ephesians, Colossians, and 2 Thessalonians, they are in the category of, of, you know, what you might call disputed. But I would side with a majority within scholarship who would hold that these two are not actually original to paul incidentally it was um that might sound a weird thing you know for people to write letters and and put paul's name on it but um it was common practice in the ancient world for students of a particular kind of school of thought if you like to use the person's name i mean that's been true in art as well hasn't it really that you know paintings which were done when someone was working with a great master sometimes attributed to him. Um, And it was a literary convention of the time, including within Judaism. So we could say that there are three Pauls, okay? There's the radical Paul, because that's what we find in the authentic letters, a much more radical Paul there. And then there's a reactionary Paul of the two Timothys and Titus, whose message, instead of developing Paul's message, uh, in many ways, goes against it at important points, and then there's the what you might call the conservative Paul of the disputed letters, who uh, accommodates the message of the radical Paul to cultural conventions of the time. Now look, for many people who adopt uh, a more straightforward or simplistic approach to the Bible, what I've just said will feel perhaps threatening, And unacceptable, which is why I made those opening comments that I did about the importance of an open, constructively critical way of reading the Bible. So, having laid that foundation, we'll look at more specifics next week. But let's just flag up something that the radical Paul, first Paul, if you like, said in Galatians 3. He says, There is no longer Jew or Greek, there is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. Clearly, he didn't mean that men and women become, you know, generic humans. Of course not. Male and female still existed. But the cultural prejudices and limitations that certainly existed in Paul's world to all of the categories mentioned there, he's saying, in Christ, no longer apply. And uh, we know from his writings, the authentic writings, that Paul saw women as equals. Um, he speaks of various people in that kind of way, you know, as a fellow apostle. And uh, and this is underscored by this 6th century uh This 6th century, sorry, I was just looking at something, 6th century fresco on a cave uh, near the ruins of Ephesus in Turkey. And um, the cave is now designated as the grotto of St. Paul. And what this this, uh, fresco or this painting shows us is it shows Paul alongside Thecla, one of his disciples, a female disciple. The two figures are both the same height. And therefore, in the uh, conventions of iconography, they're of equal importance. Okay, they both have their right hand raised in a teaching gesture and therefore they're of equal authority. But although the eyes and upraised hand of Paul are untouched, if you look, you can see someone has actually scratched out the eyes of Thecla and erased her upraised hand. Pretty startling, isn't it? And if the damage had been done to both figures, then it might just be another example of, you know, iconoclastic antagonism, you know, since that's how it was believed you could negate the power of the icon by scratching out their eyes. But even the cave's name, you know, the Grotto of St. Paul uh, itself underscores how thinking has developed over the centuries but it is an amazing image, and I think we'll come back to that and other similar things uh, at a later time. So there's the problem right there uh, in that image. Uh, Clearly it wasn't how the painting was created, and I don't think it's about what Paul, the radical authentic Paul, was about either. so next time we'll pursue these things in a little bit more detail. So I, you know a lot of a lot of kind of conceptual stuff I've given you there. But what I'm trying to do is to lay a foundation for something. And unless we open ourselves to uh, a more critical outlook toward the Bible, um, then there are very serious limits to how far we can go forward with understanding its application and reality for us for us today. Okay. So look, we're going to have a prayer which um is not one that i've written here this is by edward hayes who was a catholic priest called a song of awakening and i've chosen this because it is on the the spring equinox theme father of life mother of mystery teach us the lesson of spring as all creation comes alive tree and bush flower and plant in the alleluia richness of the resurrected creation. Grant us the gift, O God, to do the same. Teach us, O glorious spring, the lesson that nothing dies completely. At the death of the body, help us to know that we have not entered an endless winter, but simply a stage in the unfolding mystery, whose name is life. On this feast of the spring equinox, May we taste with delight the freshness and vitality of new birth and come forth from the womb of winter youthful with hope and fully alive in the presence of our God. Amen. And at that point we are going to drink a toast. So if you have a drink handy please grab it now or pour it out. And um, let's just take a moment of gratitude for the seasons of nature, for the wonderful diversity that that brings into our lives. You know, Um, there are times of the year when you just want it to get over quickly, don't you? And you want to get on to the next bit. But, But actually, there's something beautiful and wonderful and essential about all the different seasons so let's toast the changing seasons of the year in nature. But let's also toast the changing seasons of life for us. And again, some we welcome more than others. But we need to embrace it all because it's all us, you know. And things about ourselves that we reject are a, a form of, of sleeping, of not living through the whole of life. So here's to spring, here's to seasons, here's to autumn, here's to the rich diversity of life and um, here's to the oppressed people uh, that we're thinking about at this time in different parts of the world, but especially in Ukraine, to life, lachaim. very, very wonderful. Now, uh, we, had our, we had our party last week, didn't we? And um, we saw all those lovely uh, things that people wrote. And there are a couple of things that I had to change about that, not least getting rid of my voice in the background. So a new version of that is being posted probably tomorrow. Um, and there was one particular piece which uh, I had intended to, to have in, and it was my own you know, kind of disorganisation that got left out and it's a (laughs) a rather humorous poem which comes from Anne and Anne says, what the shed means to me, a meaningful space for my inquiring mind where we can explore ideas of faith in an honest and open way, an expansive space for my soul to grow, a loving space where I know that I'm accepted, an open space where anyone can come and will be truly welcome unconditionally with thanks and much love, Anne. That's great, isn't it? But she also included this lovely little poem called The Holy Shed, which says, When I lie down upon my bed and can't stop thinking in me head, I tune into a holy shed and then my thoughts are skyward led. Our capped head leader's name is Dave, Methinks he's been to many a rave. Some in the church call him a knave, but shedsters think he's nice and brave. I think it's best to cease to rhyme I'll end this ditty and say, Laheim. <laughs> That's great, isn't it? Thank you so much, Anne. And, um, and then subsequently, I've had this uh, from David Harris, which is entitled uh, The Holy Shed. He said it's a song without a tune. So if you've got a tune for this, let me know. Um, but <laughs> get down to the Holy Shed. You'll never bang your head. You'll leave feeling ten feet tall because the holy shed is not big, but it is small. Dave's not in the house, and he's not drinking grouse. he's rocking the cap and he's cutting the crap. It's time for some holy moly get down to the holy shed and all that. Dave's not in the tent, and he may be he may just <laughs> Dave's not in the tent, and he may just give vent. he's raising a glass, and he's sharing the mass. It's time for some Robin loving. Get down to the Holy Shed. Here I feel safe. Here I belong. Here I find love. Here I just am. Fantastic. Thank you, David, for that and for all the lovely things that, you know, you guys have sent in. So we're just about there, really. Um, If you like what we're doing in the Holy Shed and you'd like to support us, then you can do so by buying us a coffee or a whiskey or whatever using this link. Uh, which is always as well at the top of the posts on the uh, Holy Shed Facebook page. So you can find that there. And um, next week, uh, I'm not sure quite how it'll work. I may well be sort of broadcasting, as it were, from the lovely Holland House, where I'm leading a retreat on living soulfully. And um, it's very last minute, but if you're free next weekend and you suddenly think, hey, I'd like to do that, I'm sure there's still a place or two for you. You can find it by going to uh, the website of Holland House, which is in Worcestershire. And, um, and then over Easter, I will be at Ammerdown in Somerset, leading a retreat for a long weekend, which is wonderful, uh, under the title A Great Shout Waiting to be Born. So that's all about Easter and thinking about things along those lines. So, uh, you know, if you're free... To join me for either of them, that would be fantastic. So a blessing, the blessing of God, the eternal goodwill of God, the shalom and salam of God, the wildness and warmth of God, be among us and between us now and always, Amen. So there you go, guys. I'm going to finish with uh, a song by the wonderful Carrie Newcomer. Uh, played her before, but hey. This song I haven't played which is essentially a song about spring so it all kind of fits and I hope you enjoy that so have a great week uh, look after yourselves be kind to those around you be very kind to yourself stay human and I'll see you very soon bye enjoy this spring
1: is humming Bits of something A melody, the simple part A song that I once knew by heart Juniper, wild indigo Fox club, lupin' queen and sleigh Will be coming any day The restlessness, the quickening, the almost but not yet. Muddy boots, last year's leaves, every spring that came before, all they were and something more. Less, less, less. The quickening The almost but not yet story.